Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. My guest today is James Sheehan, who has written, among other works, the making of a modern political order who has just been released, I've been told, and he has also written essays on German history and historians. And today we are going to talk about the founding and the history of the Prussian Empire. And of course, as always, to get to know our guests a little bit before we begin, how did you come about studying 20th century German history? Well, I, you know, I think historians... Uh, don't start at the beginning, they start at the end. And uh, they then try to work backwards to see how we've got to this particular ending. Mm -hmm. And the thing about German history is that it has several quite dramatic endings Mm -hmm. that shape the way the story is told. Uh, One ending for, for 19th and early 20th century Germans was, of course, 1871, the founding of the German Empire. We can we can talk about that. Uh, then there was uh, the defeat in 1918, uh, a dramatic and powerful ending of the German Empire. And then, of course, there was 1933, uh, the formation of Hitler's Germany of the Third Reich, 1945, the the. Uh, the defeat of of Hitler and the the end, the final end of the Germany created in 1871. And then most recently, not least dramatically and significantly, uh, 1991, uh, the unification of the two post-war German states. So these endings, all of them, uh, shape the way we think about Germany and think and shape the way we think the story of, of Germany's past should be told. So, of course, I want to begin with understanding Germany, because as we know, it, it was not a unified country. Before, we don't just talk about Prussia as well, the country of Prussia, because it's fascinating, and it deserves its own episode, and it's right, and we talked about three unification, of course, but Let's begin with Germany and understand because it wasn't unified, even under the Holy Roman Empire, it, which was abolished in 1806, it wasn't unified. So how let's, how did you know countries like Bavaria, Hanover, how did these countries function one before unification? Well, that's a great question, and and it reminds us that uh, particularly in Western Europe. Our view of of what a state is is shaped by France and by Britain and and, uh, by the the Scandinavian countries, um, which are very very relatively unusual in their cohesion and their antiquity. Uh, 
Uh, Germany, Central Europe, German-speaking Central Europe, uh, was, like most of the world, broken into a series of relatively small pieces. Uh, that was the normal way that's, that political territory was divided in much of the world. And uh, it, it was only a slow process in which these pieces began to fuse uh, some of them into middle-sized states like Bavaria or Hanover or Baden and Württemberg uh, and, and Prussia. Uh, some of them still very small, like cities like Hamburg and Frankfurt. Uh, so this this variety and diversity within German-speaking Central Europe uh, was was not a as, as Germans sometimes think not an unusual and un, unfortunate uh, aberration. It was, it was the way political territory operated in, as I said, in much of the world. And of course, uh, to bring an example into this, of course, Italy comes to mind as well, which was, hasn't been unified since the Roman Empire until Garibaldi came. Indeed, indeed. I mean, Italy is another, another example. And Italy, like Germany, created a nation state of sorts more or less at the same time, yes. And that's fascinating how these two kind of came together in the same time, how both became, at the right moment, it feels like how these countries, and, and how, of course, how later they would become both fascist countries almost at the same time as well. So they kind of have a parallel history in a sense that way, I think. That's true. And in both Italy and Germany, uh, a northern, more industrialized state imposes itself uh, on the smaller, weaker states. Uh, in both of them, uh, there is uh, a statesman who is the primary architect for this process, Cavour in Italy, Bismarck, of course, in Germany. Um, so there are these interesting parallels. Uh, the, the fascist connection is, is also an important one. Um, a complicated one, I think, but we could we, we could talk about that if there's time. And let's talk about Prussia itself, because we have to understand the state of Prussia as well. And as it's famously called, it was not a state where the king had a military, but where the military had a king, if I'm saying it correctly, because it was a very militaristic state. Well, Prussia was a classic example of what historians call a composite state. Uh, in the 17th and into the 18th century, uh, Prussia was composed of separate pieces, united in the person of the ruler, the elector of Brandenburg, uh, but in uh, many other ways not united at all, not geographically united, for example. Uh, Prussia does not become a contiguous territorial state uh, until the 19th century. Uh, so it, it is a composed of these pieces. It is lucky in some very important ways. Uh, it has a series of rulers that live to adulthood. It doesn't face the kind of uh, succession crises that is so disruptive. Uh, you think about British history, uh, it's, it's marked in the, the 16th 
century by a series of conflicts over who is the rightful monarch. Uh, the Prussians, all of their monarchs are not terrifically gifted, uh, but they are they're alive, and they they there is not that there is not that succession crisis. Also, the Prussians managed to avoid uh, a confessional battle, especially between Catholics and Protestants, uh, that is so disruptive in, in a number of states. So they've got these advantages. And then they build uh, the, the leaders of Prussia, the first electors, and then um, after the beginning of the 18th century, the kings, uh, managed to build a series of very effective institutions. And as you said, and I think this is always important to remember, the army is is the chief one. Uh, the army is, is, is an effective fighting force, but more important than that, it's an effective state-making device. Because not only does the army, the army does two things in addition to fight. First of all, it provides an institutional context for reconciling the aristocracy to the state. The aristocracy becomes an officer corps, becomes part of the officer corps. Um, this gives them a stake in state making, and it allows the Prussians to avoid those powerful conflicts between aristocrats and centralizing power. Uh, that exist in many places. Think about France, for example. The, the second thing that, that the army does is it advances the making of the, the penetration by the state into social life. So Prussia is divided, for example, into military districts. And there are uh, officials there who who take care of the training and the supply, the recruitment of the army. And once again, just as the aristocracy is bound to the state through its military service, so the penetration of the state, into, particularly into rural life, is affected by these military institutions. So it's a fighting force, uh, but it's much, much more than a fighting force. So I want to talk about us, of course, as well. What was known in Germany as the younger class, and they were especially in Prussia as well. What was the what was the advantages of being in the younger, and by that mean the farming class, those who owned the estates, and so and of course Bismarck, who was famously called the Mad Junker, which we will talk about in a second. But what was the advantages of growing up being a Junker? Well, the Junkers were landed nobles. Uh, in compared, let's say, to the British landed nobility, uh, they were relatively poor. Uh, they were better off than their peasants, um, but they were not. They did not have these vast estates that one found in in Britain. Uh, they also have a great deal of local power, uh, power over their peasants. They serve as the local magistrate. Um, they no longer, after the 17th century, they no longer have the power to, to put people to death, but they can, they can have them whipped. They can have them punished in a variety of ways. So they're, 
again, they serve as a local force. And part of Prussia's advantage in state-making is it's able to absorb them so that the, the key local bureaucrat, called in, in, in German a Landrat, often a Junker or related to a Junker, that is to related to the landed nobility, is both a local official and a state official. And this dual, this dual uh, character, this dual institutional loyalty, which sometimes, sometimes can lead to, to serious conflicts, but this dual loyalty is, again, a way in which the aristocracy is linked to, absorbed by uh, the state. Of course, I like you mentioned, Bismarck would be a younger, but he was never would never become a rich younger. Like you said, it was like you said, the youngers they were had didn't have as much money or wealth, and Bismarck was among them. And let's let's talk about his early childhood because he doesn't seem to go very well along with his mother and father. He has kind of he does seem to go well enough with his brothers, but his own mother and father seem to kind of not go very well along with. Well, his father is a classic example of the landed nobility. His mother comes from a bureaucratic family, uh, is much better educated, is 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 never entirely at home in this fairly rough and ready uh, rural area. Um, she is, uh, I think, a very important figure in Bismarck's life, uh, but one with which, with which she's never entirely comfortable. Once again, uh, this is a rural nobility. Uh, you don't find in cities like Berlin those great uh, urban houses that you find in London where the landed nobility would come in and spend the season in London in rather splendid quarters and then go back to their estates for the, the hunting season and for, for later on. So uh, it, 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 there isn't, there is not that linkage between urban life, that comfortable linkage between urban and rural life that you get in some places. Uh, and I think Bismarck's mother is, is, is rather lonely and unhappy in, in, in married to this character, who's a kind of a rough and ready figure in, it, in the best of times. Mm. Uh, Bismarck is, is very, uh, very restless as a young man. He goes to the university. He doesn't really study very hard. Uh, he's thought he might have a career in the civil service. He's not really good at taking orders. Uh, so, um, he wanders around. He, he finally, he finally gets religion, which, which helps him to settle down a bit. He marries, which also helps him settle down to a, a very warm and supportive woman. But it's really the revolution of 1848 that, that gives him his, his opportunity. It's, it brings him out of this rural, uh, somewhat isolated, uh, somewhat crude and rusticated life of the landed nobility and brings him into uh, the world of, of politics. And we're going to talk about the 1848 revolution in a second, of course, which, and again, is an episode in itself. But I want to talk about his marriage for a second as well, because his choice for a partner, Joanna, Joanna is never, 
von Bismarck is never she's never described as beautiful or attractive or very intelligent for that matter or society lady as kind of was expected at the time in Prussian nobility but what what made him land what did they feel safe around or how what what's the reason for choosing Johanna as his wife but he does genuinely seem to love her but still she it's a peculiar choice I think well she's not glamorous that's certainly true she is loyal uh, there's a lot of debate about the significance of religion in Bismarck's life. He does have something of a confer of a conversion, uh, brings his wild youth to an end, uh, the conversion to uh, a kind of uh, interior Protestantism, pietism. Um, how sincere this is. I'm for one I'm not sure some people make a lot more of Bismarck's religion I think than I would um Bismarck kept a, a collection of bib of biblical verses which he would write down uh, but it often turns out these are verses that match what he decided to do anyway so um he does he certainly does believe in God he certainly is has a sense of a divine purpose and I think that his wife is is part of this. I mean, she is a religious person herself and helps to stabilize him. He's a very restless guy. He eats and drinks too much. At one stage, he got so angry at his dog that he beat him to death. He's got a, he's got a volcanic temper. Um, and it's it's a continued struggle for him to keep this, particularly after he enters public life to keep these passions under control. So let's talk about him entering politics. What what made him choose politics as a career profession? Well, he doesn't. Uh, that's a good question, because when the revolution, the revolution begins, well, but before the revolution begins, uh, the king decides that he's going to call a, uh, a meeting of the local parliaments. He needs money, uh, very much as happened in 1789, right? They needed money. They needed money. And so they called this uh, collection of parliaments, and Bismarck is part of that. Then, when the revolution begins, uh, Bismarck is horrified. Uh, the king caves. The king, the, the king is, does not have the strength of will. And like many of his fellow monarchs in 1848, uh feels he has to he has to give in to the revolutionaries uh, bismarck is very much opposed to this he's for standings firm but getting tough and this brings him into contact with a number of counter-revolutionary forces most of them aristocrats um who see him and they see his talent which was which was great they see his energy which was enormous um, and this brings him then close to the the center of, of power for the first time. And then he goes to plead for help, which I don't remember exactly what it is he asked for help for, but he goes to Wilhelm to the Wilhelm the first wife or just to ask for help and he asks something that she would never forgive him for again and she would detest Bismarck for the rest of her life. 
Well, there was that tense relationship too, the details of which I must admit I have not, I, I don't remember. Uh, the important thing about Bismarck in 1848 is he then becomes the Prussian delegate uh, to the German Confederation. German Confederation is set up in 1815 to regulate German affairs in Central Europe. And it's a collection of all the existing German states. Many of them don't survive the, the revolutionary period, but there enough of them do. Uh, it's a collection of them, and it's a collection of states in which the two German superpowers, uh, the Habsburg monarchy and Prussia, have a distinctive role. When the Confederation is reformed after the revolution, the Prussians, real, the Prussians are willing to recognize uh, the superiority of the Austrians. Uh, it's a partnership, uh, but it's a partnership really that depends upon uh, Prussia accepting a junior partner role. This Bismarck is unwilling to do. So he enters German affairs, not Prussian affairs now, but German affairs as the Prussian representative to the Confederation. And he then sees one of the really key insights in his career and a key insight for, for Germany's future development. He then sees it will be possible to take this pro-national sentiment and to link it to uh, Prussian interests. There's a, there's a famous quote uh, from the 1850s in which he says, German interests are Prussian interests properly understood. And that means that you can, rather than seeing German nationhood and the existence of the Prussian state as inevitably in conflict, which many of, of Bismarck's fellow uh, aristocrats, Prussian aristocrats did, you see them as possible partners. And you see a way of using, using German nationalism, not as a radical force for change, but as a conservative force for preserving the status quo. Mm. This is Cavour's insight in Italy is in many ways Napoleon III's insight in France. You might say, stretching it a little bit, it's Disraeli's insight in Britain. So it's very much the, the generation of leaders that come into power after the revolution. Mm. See that they can use nationalism, not, not as a radical, but as a a conservative force. And this is, this is, I think, the, the, the key to Bismarck's future conduct. And of course, another thing that happened in, in the mid 1850s, and we have to talk about this as well, is the Schleswig, first Schleswig Holstein War. And of course, at the time, though it wasn't under direct rule of Denmark, it was, of course, a protectorate of, of Denmark. And this would play later in what would become. Scandinavianism, the, the dream of uniting Scandinavia at the, at the time after the first uh, Schleswig-Holstein War. But let's talk about what 
brought in the Schleswig Holstein War in the first place. Well, and this is, of course, another example. And to go back to what I said towards the beginning of our conversation, the way in which political territories are not divided into clearly defined territorial states. Mm-hmm. Schleswig-Holstein was a, was a perfect example of what was a common condition in the old regime, and that it was bound to Denmark through personal rule of the of the ruler. It was not it was not a a part of the Danish state. It was a connect, connected through the Danish monarch. And it was connected in such a way that when the Danish monarch died, uh, the hereditary role of Schleswig-Holstein is thrown into question. Hmm. Now, there is a national German minority in, in Schleswig-Holstein that would like to see the the provinces united in some way or another uh, to Germany. Um, Bismarck sees it. Bismarck doesn't really care very much about what happens to Schleswig-Holstein, but he does see it as a way of beginning that process of partnership between Prussia and the national movement. So he manages, now remember, the German Confederation depends upon the cooperation of Austria and Germany. So he manages to get the Austrians to cooperate with Prussia in what is a very one-sided war against the Danes, which, of course, the Prussians and the Austrians win and relatively quickly and easily. Now, after he's done that, he then maneuvers the Austrians into a kind of partnership in the administration of Schleswig-Holstein, which is bound to cause trouble. And he knows it's not going to work. The Austrians then find themselves confronted by a breakdown in this partnership as the Prussians, and Bismarck is pushing the king here, who doesn't really want to do this, uh, pushing him into taking a more independent role. Bismarck knows that in order to solidify this partnership between Prussia and the German national cause, he's going to have to force, he's going to have to break the Confederation and he's going to have to force the Austrians out of a uh, hegemonic position over German affairs. Now, we should mention as well, of course, that at the time, of course, before the unification of Germany, Austria, Hungary, or the Habsburg monarchy at the time, it would. It wasn't leaving German power in Europe. It wasn't Prussia. It's yet at least, but the Habsburg monarchy was the leading German power in Europe. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Prussia was uh, under Frederick the Great, Frederick the Second, in in the eighteenth century. Prussia gets a seat at the table of the great powers. Barely, it is by far the weakest of the great powers. Uh, in 1815, after the defeat of Napoleon, 
um, Austria, let's call it Austria, just as it make it yeah. easier to talk about. Um, Austria is, is clearly the most important of the continental powers, right? Uh, Russia, Russia is big and powerful, but has its own problems. Britain has always had a um, problematic relationship with the continent. Uh, France has been defeated. Prussia is small and weak. Prussia almost disappears during the revolutionary period. So in 1815, the Congress of Vienna takes place in the Austrian capital. The dominant figure, Metternich, is the Austrian chancellor. Uh, so it, it looks as though Austria is is really the preeminent power, not only in Germany, but on the continent. What happens next, for a variety of complicated reasons, is that Austria's power diminishes, particularly relatively. It remains a great power, uh, but, you know, as, as, as often happens, um, there's a lot of inertia in, in great power relations, and people don't always notice the degree to which power slips away, particularly relative power. And this is what happens. So that when, when Austria and Prussia do go to war in 1866, uh, nobody thinks that the Prussians are going to win easily. Mm. Or very few people think that. Mm. So we're, going, it, we're going to talk about the Franco-Prussian war in a second. I'm sorry for disturbing you there. But let's, I just wanted to point out that, of course, it is, and I think it's important to mention for the episode as well, and Austria-Hungary was, or sorry, I'm, I mean Austria, it's not Austria-Hungary yet, I forget that, but I wanted to bring it up that Austria actually was a powerhouse at the time. But let's go, let's go back to how, what led up to the Franco-Prussian War and how Bismarck, Bismarck managed to navigate through the dividing of Schleswig-Holstein and Austria. Well, okay, so... so... Bismarck manipulates Austria into the Schleswig-Holstein affair, uses that uh, as a way of uh, breaking ties with Austria, uh, goes to war in 1866 against the Austrians, defeats them very, very quickly. Uh, the great, the other great powers want to bring this war to a swift end. So they begin to put pressure on the two sides to make a deal. And they do. It's important that, that these 19th century German wars and the Italian wars as well, are wars decided by battles. The Austrians lose the battle of Königgrätz and therefore sue for peace. As you know, in the 20th century, just because you lose a battle doesn't mean you're going to quit. Mm. And so uh, the 19th, these 19th century wars of battles uh, are a very different kind of war. And they have built-in limitations because neither side, certainly this is true in 1866, neither side sees the purpose of war as the total destruction of its opponent. Mm. 
So uh, the Austria, Austria loses the war. They lose their place in the German Confederation. They have to pay some indemnity. But the Austrian government, the, uh, the monarchy, the, remains intact. Uh, and that, I think, is, a, is an important part of the misconception about war that people will carry into the 20th century. And another thing, of course, there are two more things that happens, very important things that, that happens in 1866. And one of them is Bismarck's famous blood and iron speech. And we have to talk, of course, we have to talk about it because surprise, though it is an epic speech, it wasn't very well received afterwards, which might, might, which is what's quite surprising when I met Red Steinberg's book biography on Bismarck. He, he wrote the how it wasn't very well received afterwards that it wasn't a popular speech at the time. That's true. Now, remember, Bismarck was the Prussian delegate at the German Confederation. He's then removed. He's, he's sent as an ambassador to Russia, uh, partly by his opponents who want to get rid of him, send him into what he calls cold storage. But he actually enjoys his time in Russia, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, but then he comes back and he's made prime minister, minister president, during a constitutional crisis uh, in 1862. It's a crisis over military reforms, another indication of the importance of the army in Prussian history, Prussian politics. Uh, the king, a new king now, he's taken over from his brother. Uh, this is William I. Wants to reform the, the army. The, the liberals who dominate the Prussian parliament uh, resist. Uh, there is a constitutional crisis. The king is ready to give in. He's, he feels maybe he should ought to abdicate or give up, uh, but Bismarck is called in by the people around the king who want him to be tough and to, to stand fast. And Bismarck, they feel, has the, has the confidence and the will uh, to back up, to force the king, stiffen his backbone, keep him uh, from giving in to the parliament. Uh, this is a, the first of the, the famous uh, meetings between William I and, and Bismarck. Um, William I rules until 1888. So this is a long relationship and a, a relationship that is punctuated by dramatic scenes. And in this one, uh, the king says, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have to quit. I can't sleep. And Bismarck makes the famous remark, Kings must sleep. And it is in this context that he gives his speech to the budget committee of the Prussian parliament, in which he says uh, the German question was not solved by words. That was the lesson of 1848. It will be solved by blood and iron. We shouldn't think that in October of 1862, when he gives this speech, that he has in his mind everything that's going to happen. Um, he's, not at all, he's not at all clear 
that he sees uh, a series of events that will lead to the proclamation of the German Empire in 1871. He certainly sees a lot of possibilities. Uh, he realizes that relationships with Austria are not going to uh, settle down. Um, he realizes that uh, the existing of a German confederation, as it now, as it then was, is probably not going to remain. Uh, but he's keeping his options open. So let's talk about the German confederation, how it was made and how it functioned. Because it wasn't, as you know, we talked about already, Germany wouldn't be unified until 1870 officially. But what, let's talk, because first you had, as you mentioned, the German confederation. So how did it function exactly? And what was the goal with the German confederation? Okay, so there, to be clear, the German confederation, the so-called Bund, is formed in 1815, uh, and in an effort to regulate German affairs. That's what comes to an end in 1866. Bismarck then establishes the North German Confederation. Uh, Austria's out. Prussia annexes uh, a, a number of smaller German states. Um and for the first time, Prussia becomes a territorially cohesive unit as it takes over Hesse, which had always lain between uh, Prussia's lands in the west and in the east. So Prussia annexes some German territories, leaves a number of others, and gathers them together in a confederation, which is essentially a collection of rulers, the kings and so forth, grand dukes and the cities and the leaders of the cities, the three remaining uh, independent cities, um, brings them together, but also introduces a parliament that has the extraordinary provision of being elected by all adult males. This is part of Bismarck's idea of a partnership, but not only between Prussia and German and the German national movement, but between the Prussian monarchy and the people. Because when Prussia, when Bismarck introduces universal manhood suffrage, he doesn't have in mind a bunch of factory workers. He has in mind his peasants. He has in mind the peasants on his estate, who he feels are unlike a lot of these professors and businessmen and 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 lower level bureaucrats. These are not people who are liberal and who want change and who want uh, all these things that Bismarck is very suspicious of. These are people who are monarchical, who are religious, and who are loyal to their betters. So he imagines that that this parliament, uh, democratically elected, will turn out to be a essentially conservative vehicle. He's wrong, of course, but 
that's part of our story. Mm. So let, let's, of course, talk about the one, how it unifies, Germany gets unified, and of course, this will later lead up to the Franco-Prussian War, which we will talk about in a second, but let's talk about the unification itself, and how William I become Kaiser of Germany. And to add to the question, I want to know, well, how did the great powers at the time, like Russia, Britain, and Austria, of course, feel about the unification of Germany? which happened in 1870. Okay, that's that's a very, very good question, and it's an important part of this whole story. Because the, the great powers after 1815 wanted to preserve, as best they could, a peaceful, orderly Europe. They knew what had happened between 1793 and 1815. They knew that, that that war, particularly war among the great powers, uh, could have profound revolutionary effects, which they wanted to avoid. So there was, there was a great deal of pressure uh, from the great powers not to have uh, large-scale territorial reorganizations. But in the time in which Bismarck operates, the two great powers, Britain on the Atlantic, Russia in the East, are both very much occupied with their internal affairs. Both of them come out of the, the Crimean War, the war in the 1850s, a brief but kind of very destructive and, 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 and uh, uh, ineffective war. Both of them come out of that with the idea that they have to make some domestic changes. This is the time of the British Reform Bill. More importantly, it's the time of the, the liberation of the, the emancipation of the serfs in Russia. So both Russia and Britain are distracted in ways that they hadn't been before and in some ways wouldn't be again. And this is a, this is one of Bismarck's great advantages. It's, it's luck. Uh, and he uses it, of course. And, and it, I, want, I want to add to the question as well. Is, did nationalism play a part, which, of course, was taken off at this time with the 1848 revolutions? Of course, nationalism must have played a part there. But did nationalism help Bismarck's idea, idea at all? Well, certainly there's a national movement. Um, how strong it is is, is a matter of debate. Uh, but it is certainly strong in a number of uh, critical social groups, um, academics, lawyers, um, some businessmen, not all. Um, so that there are certainly those who feel that, that the time has come to create some sort of a German nation. There's a lot of division as to what, what this should look like. So that, that nationalism is there. It is not, in my view, an irresistible force. I mean, it's it's the Prussian army that unifies Germany. It's it's not, and in that case, uh, Bismarck's blood and iron speech is 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 correct. Um, but it is there, and Bismarck uses it, and he certainly uses it to legitimize uh, what he's done, and and that is that is an important 
part of the story that that Bismarck is able uh, to legitimize the results of these three wars by claiming that they're carried on not simply in the interests of the Prussian state, but in the interests of the German nation. So I'm, I'm, I want to draw, before we go into the Prussian war as well, I want to, which happened almost immediately after that, I want to know what happened to the Pithecinians, because as we know, they, the smaller German states were ruled by kings and princes at the time. So what happened to those after the unification of Germany, like Ludwig of Bavaria to mention one? Because what happened to the to the royalties and the kings of who ruled these these city states, maybe not city states, but these smaller states? Well, most of them remain. And the German Empire, created in 1871, uh, is a federal state. Um, there's the famous painting um, of the proclamation of the empire in January at Versailles in January of 1871. And it's proclaimed by the rulers of the German states. The sovereignty of the empire, in theory, was held by a collective of the rulers. And there were those who, who when they were dissatisfied with the way the empire was uh, developing, thought that maybe they ought to reorganize it. They to, and they, the way they thought about reorganizing it was to call these rulers together, King of Württemberg, King of Bavaria, King of Saxony, Grand Duke of Baden, the city governments of uh, Hamburg, Frankfurt, and Bremen, and a number of other small, oh, and then the, Mecklen, the Dukes, of Mecklenburg and so forth. We don't, we don't have to go through them all. To call these monarchs and rulers together, dissolve the Reich and reorganize it. Well, that never happened, and I don't think there was any real chance it was going to happen. But anyway, the, the, the theoretical uh, construction of the Reich was these was a collection of rulers who meet whose representatives meet in something called the Bundesrat, uh, in which there are in which there is unequal voting. In other words, it's the voting is organized by size. Mm. It's organized in such a way that Prussia will always have the advantage. Mm. So it is Germany is still a federal state. Germany is still uh, quite unlike France, uh, for example. Uh, Germany still has uh, lender, uh, which with a considerable amount of power over schools, uh, some police forces, uh, and a number of other things. So that that federal quality of the empire uh, continues into uh, Germany's present. Do forgive me for delaying the Franco-Prussian War in again, but I want to as well. There's something I want to know because you know. Most historians seem to draw one 
linear line from the creation of Prussia, as you witness right now, until the rise and fall of Adolf Hitler, that it's one linear line that this created way for Adolf Hitler. But is it fair to think, and, and, and Katja Hoyer as well in her book, she, she argues that she thinks it's rather unfair that it's not necessarily didn't have to end with Adolf Hitler as that it didn't necessarily pave the way. It should have ended differently. That it's not just a linear line from the creation of Prussia until Adolf Hitler. What do you think about this? Well, I think that's absolutely right. And, and um, remember what I said at the very beginning, that, that historians shape their story according to endings. Ooh. And I think it, it, we must always resist the notion that the end we choose to begin our story with was inevitable, had to be. Uh, it's not at all clear to me that the German Empire of 1871 was the only answer to the so-called German question. Mm. And indeed, if it had happened, uh, if it hadn't happened then, <clears throat> it's hard for me to see how it could have happened much later, because if these other states had democratized and their institutions had solidified, it would have been much harder to gather them in to a single federal entity. Mm. And I, I certainly don't think you can draw a line between uh, the emergence of Prussia as a great power and uh, the creation of Nazi Germany. Mm. And it's of course, not, it's not an accident. Mm. That's not the alternative. The alternative is not to think it's all accidental, uh, but it's certainly not inevitable. And of course, next on our topic is, of course, the Franco-Prussian War, because, and we have to leave Germany for a brief second, because that's what it's not actually about Prussia, at the, or it is, but you know, in Spain at the time, there was some succession crisis. And of course, as we mentioned, Napoleon III had also a Hand, wanted to play a hand in the succession. But Bismarck, of course, wanted the son of Wilhelm I, I think, or he wanted some Prussian prince on the throne. And he does, you know, in what I think is, and he wanted a war with France as well. And he does, so he tried to play Napoleon III, and you know, rather, if I may, brilliant way that he lured him into the Franco-Prussian War. Well, that's true. There's a... <clears throat> There's a lot of debate about uh, whether Bismarck, in fact, had plotted uh, a Franco a war with France. Uh, he certainly took advantage of it, and that was his key. That was his key to his success, particularly during the the first ten years or so of his time in office. Is he sees advantages? It's not. It's not that he's got it all plotted out in advance. Um. That, I think, is not the key to his profound talent. His profound talent was to recognize opportunities and to seize them. And I think that's as good a definition of, of great leadership as, as I can imagine. Um, you don't create these opportunities necessarily, but you recognize them. Um Napoleon was one was once asked what kind of generals he liked, and he said lucky ones. Ooh. And um, I think Bismarck was lucky. There's no getting around it. Uh, but the luck uh, was allowed him 
to have opportunities that he recognized and used. So, of course, it would be a victory, and you would have soldiers in in Paris, and they would be right outside Paris as well. In and it was that would cross the end of Napoleon the Third's reign, of course. But so let's talk about the victory of the Franco-Prussian War as well. Well, as in 1866, in fact, despite 1866, I think nobody felt that um, the Prussians would win so quickly. Um, They did so because they were, uh, they had their, I think their weapons were slightly better, Um, but they did so because they were much better organized you know, there's the old uh, cliche that people who talk about war often uh, quote, that is that uh, amateurs uh, talk about strategy, professionals mm. talk about logistics. Mm. It's moving men, moving equipment, moving things mm. in place. Um, and and wasn't the use of railroads essential for Prussian? Railroads are certainly, are certainly central. Um, the kind of organization, not only not only the presence of railroads, but being able to use them. It's a, it's a vastly complicated thing. I mean, a, a division of soldiers with their horses, their rifles, their food, their medical supplies. These are these are big, complicated organizations, uh, and to move them from one place to another, to get them off. And then have them ready to to fight uh, is is a major accomplishment, and the Prussians and their allies turned out to be a lot better than that, a lot better at that than the French. It's not really so much a battlefield bravery; uh, the French soldiers were brave too, uh, but it is getting there, uh, getting there first, getting there fully equipped getting there organized, and then being able to fight. And, of course, another thing that happened in the 1870s, and that which was colonization of Africa, which Germany wanted to play a part as well. So let's talk about creating the German colonies for for the new German states, which they now were a great power, and they wanted a part of the colonization of Africa as well. Okay, we're jumping ahead now to yeah. 1818. All right. Bismarck is a European statesman. Mm. He sees Prussia and then the German Empire. He sees them as a European power. And he recognizes, and here I think he is absolutely right, he recognizes that German interests are essentially dependent upon their relationship with the great powers. And he does not want to do anything that's going to make that harder. That makes him very, very skeptical about colonies. Not about economic relationships overseas. Not about sending out missionaries not about trade, not about all of these things, but having pieces of territory. Um, 
and again, there's very good evidence that, that this is right, that th these territories usually don't really pay for themselves. They're usually a big waste of time and money. Um, and uh, particularly the African territories. Uh, some people make money out of them, the people who, who sell uniforms and uh, make these tropical helmets and so forth. They, they do fine. But for the state as a whole, these are usually uh, losing propositions. But a lot of people disagree. And um, a lot of people feel that if you're going to be a great power, you need certain things. You need a navy, you need a, uh, and you need colonies. Uh, the British have colonies. They're a great power. Why don't we? French have colonies. They're a great power. Why don't we? So in 1884, Bismarck, for a variety of reasons, and there's a there's a big debate among historians as to why he does this. Um, Bismarck does agree to pick up some territories in the Pacific uh, and in Africa. They don't really amount to that much in the larger scheme of things. Uh, the Dutch, for example, are much more powerful colonial have a much more important colonial empire than the Germans, uh, but they're there. Uh, th there's recently been a, a greater emphasis on uh, the German colonial adventure and its role, uh, not only in, in Germany's international position, uh, but also as its role in the in the poisoning of German domestic politics. Hmm. There's there there's some argument to be made for that, um, not I think as much as its most eloquent exponents do, but there is some argument. And I definitely if I do jump a little back and forth because we don't really leave this much soon. But another thing that happened during his reign is of course industrialization of Germany as well. And as Peter Wilson argues in his Iron and Blood book about German military history. Whereas Britain had a century, to, so to speak, to get used to the industrialization, Ger Germany had only a decade from being an agricultural, largely agricultural country to getting used to, in the span of a decade, they had to get used to new, new technology and this new way of life. So it couldn't have been easy to adjust in, in, in this short amount of time. For the Prussians. Well, yeah, I I don't entirely agree with that. I I think there's a there's a, a critical moment in all of this comes in 1815 when Prussia, somewhat reluctantly, is given the Rhineland and Westphalia, the western provinces. Uh, the Prussians wanted all of Saxony. Uh, lots of good agricultural land that they felt they should take over. Uh, the great powers gave them part of Saxony, but not all of it. They wanted, they wanted to have a, a, uh, uh, a collection of secondary states of which Saxony, Saxony was one. So instead, uh, they give uh, the Prussians uh, the Rhineland and Westphalia. That turns out to be a extraordinarily important and useful thing because, of course, it is here 
And the Rhineland, which is a commercial center with lots of big, important cities like Cologne, uh, but Westphalia is a uh, great industrial. Yes, well. that's that's absolutely right. With the with the coal and the iron mines, which then become for this stage of industrialization, and of course, um, you got the Krupp dynasty as well. In that's that, absolutely right. They are part of the story. They are not. Indeed. So um, Prussia's uh, rise to power economically uh, comes not only from developing its own old, its resources. There's there's some uh, important mining areas in uh, Silesia, and the area around Prussian Saxony is also. Uh, highly industrialized in textiles and others. Uh, but it is these Western provinces which shift Prussia westward. It makes it much more of a European power uh, rather than a, a central or Eastern European power, central power. So this is a, uh, this is a key moment in providing the wealth uh, that Prussia will use. Hmm. And do forgive me for jumping, but we don't have all all time, I'm afraid. So we do have to jump a little bit to, to William the first death. And as I famously put it, it was not easy to rule under Bismarck, being a king under Bismarck's life. No, being around Bismarck was not easy under any circumstances. It was not easy being his wife. It was certainly not easy being his children. Um, but it was, it was also very difficult to be his king. William I had never wanted to be king. He was a younger brother. He was a soldier. He was a, a man not without gifts. It was a stable, um, regular you know, you know, uh, stable and and uh, I think commanding personality in some ways um, uh, but his 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 ambitions were modest he becomes king when his brother uh, is has a stroke um, and uh, is incapacitated he becomes regent and then king um he becomes king at this very turbulent time. He would have been quite happy just to spend his time on army maneuvers and uh, hunting trips. He's king at this very turbulent time, and he finds himself linked with this enormously successful, uh, but temperamental and willful and uh, sometimes unreliable uh, chancellor, prime minister and then chancellor. In, in the form of Bismarck. And of course, let's talk about his death because his son, Frederick, who would not rule, was quite old as well. He would not rule for long. And of course, this would lead to Wilhelm II's rule of Prussia, which would be essential for Bis both Bismarck's career. And that this is where we're going to leave Bismarck in a second. But, you know, it, it would lead to essential part of Prussian history. Well, I, I mentioned uh, 
a while ago that one of the great advantages of Prussia as a state was that they had a series of rulers that lived to, uh, that were adults and inherited the throne uh, without that succession problem that occurred in many other states. One of the prices that the Prussians pay for this, the Hohenzollern and the, the ruling family, is that there are frequent severe clashes between fathers and sons. Mm. Um, Frederick the Great's father uh, tyrannized over him. Uh, in fact, was such a their relationship was so difficult that Frederick the Great attempted to flee with his friend uh, and is captured and brought back and put in prison. So there is a series of, of difficult relationships. And this is certainly true of William I and his son, the Crown Prince Frederick. Now, the Crown Prince Frederick was uh, a man of, of some ability. He was a fairly effective military commander in the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, but he had the misfortune of being married to the daughter of Queen Victoria, a very difficult, ambitious, and demanding woman, far smarter, smarter and tougher uh, than uh, Prince Frederick. I mean, it is only to be expected when you're the daughter of Victoria herself, though. Yeah, and of, and of Albert, even more than even mm-hmm. even more than Victoria. So she leans towards liberalism. She she leans towards uh, uh, having a more progressive uh, attitude towards life, um, and also continually yearns for what she thinks of as the more civilized, uh, cosmopolitan world of London. And, and she is not particularly discreet uh, about uh, making these feelings known. She is a very, very difficult woman, I must say, mm-hmm. and um, not a popular one, for I think, for very good reason. She makes life at court between William and his son uh, difficult, Bismarck is terrified about what's going to happen when William dies and his son takes over. Rightfully so. Yeah, rightfully so. So he's going to have to deal not only with Crown Prince Frederick, but he's going to have to deal with his dreadful wife. And uh, this leads him to manipulate as best he can uh, to be sure that when this unfortunate thing happens, he will survive. And one of the things he does is he takes up with the eldest son of Princess, Vic- uh, Princess Victoria and Crown Prince Frederick, and that is young William. He takes him up, he brings him over, he has him for lunch, he cultivates him, he flatters him, um, and he hopes that he can survive. Once again, it's this father-son conflict. 
that he can survive in part by having the the new the the next heir in line clearly in his camp. I mean, it, it backfires really badly, of course. It backfires badly. Of course, one one thing that happens is that by the time uh, King Wilhelm William dies, his son has a severe cancer of the throat. Uh, which he does not survive. He, he he reigns for, I think it's 99 days, most of the time incapacitated, most of the time unable to speak. Uh, so it is a brief and tragic reign, and he is replaced then by his son, William, who is quite young. Uh, 49, I think, at this time. Uh, something like that. Um, who is Bismarck's he, who Bismarck feels will be his ally in, and so forth. And this, as it, you know, doesn't turn out that way. So let's talk about the Prussia after Bismarck and, of course, the reign of William II. And, of course, he, well, he would seem to be quite a bully, William. And, of course, it didn't help that he was never an athletic because, you know, his birth with his left hand, I think it was, it, it, it was a bit. He had his disability as well, which did not help him. And he was never sport. He had never been sport. He never run because of his disability. And so let's talk about. And he became a bit of a bully because. So let's talk about Prussia under William the Second. Okay, so as we know, William the Second becomes uh, king and emperor uh, at a very young age. Uh, he does have this uh, birth defect that was caused by when he, when he when he was born, um, his arm was was injured uh, coming out of the womb. Um, he does his best to overcome it. Um, he is certainly much more than either his father or his grandfather. Uh, a person of considerable intellectual ability. Um, he's very curious. He's very ambitious. Uh, but he is in some ways uh, terribly flawed. He, he is, he, he, there's been a lot of uh, efforts to psychoanalyze him. Um, but he does have uh personality disorders uh, that seem to be partly uh, a kind of narcissism, a desire for attention and praise and uh, constant reinforcement. Um, but he also has a lot of trouble concentrating. I mean, he's interested in, in a great many things. He knows a lot, uh, but he's not stable. He's not able to kind of focus and uh, recognize both the possibilities and the limitations. Um, there, there are some historians who emphasize William's importance, um, who emphasize his personal rule, as called. Uh, I'm not one of them. Um, he certainly is, because of his constitutional role, 
is able to play a, a decisive part in a few key moments. But if you make a list of what he said he wanted to do and what he was going to do and so forth, and what actually gets done, they don't coincide. I want to know before we move on with Bismarck, sorry, with Wilhelm, was it, because at this point Bismarck is, of course, quite old, was it the right move for Wilhelm to remove him from power as well? Or was it, was it not? They should have waited a little bit and let me had a smoother transition perhaps to the next chancellor. Well, um, I think he could have done it. I, I think it was time for Bismarck to go. Uh, I think that he had become increasingly inflexible. I mean, his his great his great skill, as I as I said before, was to recognize opportunities and to use them. I think he became increasingly less flexible. And, and uh, I must say, this is not an uncommon feature of age. Um, and it's also true uh, that the world became increasingly complicated. Um, Bismarck was lucky in being born at a time when his virtues and abilities mattered and could be used. Uh, by the 1880s, this is a new world. Uh, it's a world in which there are many more big cities. It's a world in which the, the rural aristocratic milieu in which he grew up, in which he still, I think, saw as the, the model for how the world worked. This was fading fast. I mean, uh, if, if I may draw a parallel in our episode on John Adams, we discussed in the beginning how nothing really changed in his lifetime technological or, or anything changed that much in, in advancement from his birth in, in birth until the, his death in late 1700s. But in this, compared to Bismarck time, a lot of things changes from his birth until until uh, until his death. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, it, it, Bismarck is getting older and less flexible, um, but the world is getting much more complicated and intractable. Hmm. So uh, this it, it is always true, I think, in which makes the makes the assessment of leadership uh, especially tricky because how much of it has to do with the leader. How much it has to do with the the context in which the leader is born, and of course, uh, after Bismarck, one of the most famous uh, who would arrive in nineteen o four, I think, of course, is uh, I and mean, it would be essential for World War One on the German side is Helmut von Moltke, the Moltke, the younger, of course, the elder was under Bismarck's time, but this time the young Moltke. I'm sorry if I say his name wrong would prosper and under the new Russian government. Well, once again, I'm not sure I understood just what, what you're just oh, saying. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, hell, I'm, do, I'm going to try to... If not, I'm going to try to write it down for you. Uh, and then Helmut von Moltke as well would, of course, enter Prussian history 
and I've been trying to write it down for you. I'm, I'm not sure if I've said the name right. I do forgive me. Helmut. Um, yeah, Helmut von Moltke. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. The nephew yeah. of the great. Yeah. So let's talk about his career as well under the Prussian Empire. Uh, well, okay, because once again, we're back to what we just were talking about. That is, uh, there's no doubt that the elder Moltke uh, was an incredibly skillful and successful strategist who understood the role of railways and understood the, the organization of modern armies in a way that few of his contemporaries did. By 1900, that world has changed as well. Uh, that the armies that Moltke moved into Bohemia in 1866, into France in 1870, this, these armies have become larger, much more complicated, much harder to organize, um, and the difficulties of moving them and using them are now profoundly different. There's no doubt that his nephew, the younger, the younger Moltke, was significantly less talented in any number of ways. And it was a it was a big mistake to put him in charge. But whoever but also because of the name that he changed. It was partly because of his name, sure. William William the second thought that his his grandfather had had a Moltke, he wanted one. Um, so it was a big mistake. But whoever was in charge would have had great difficulty doing what the young the, the elder Moltke had done, as would turn out to be the case in 1914. Hmm. Something that fascinates me as well about the William II's reign is his choosing. And I we talked about this in our episode a long time ago. We made an episode on Ottomans as well, of course. It's the Ottoman-Prussian alliance. And well, it may, we have to give it a little bit of background as well, I feel, because it makes sense why they would choose to ally with, ally with Germany, because you know, England and France wanted a part of the Middle East. They wanted colonies in the Middle East, and they wanted to tear up the Ottoman Empire for their own gain. But of course, so of course, they were kind of out of the question to ally with the with for the Ottoman side. And when Abdullah Amin II, of course, was Sultan at the time, so of course, it, when it, you think about it, it, and Germany had didn't really seem to have interest in the Middle East, whereas France and Britain had. So from that point of view, it makes sense why the Ottomans chose to join forces with Wilhelm second and Prussia. Yes. I mean, this, the, the easy way to understand the alliances that get formed during the First World War is to realize that people made alliances against powers that had things they wanted. Mm. And the British and the French had things in the Middle East. And, and I mean, they, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it looked as though the Germans were going to win uh, during the early stages of the war. Hmm. So, um, big mistake. 
So, of course, uh, let's talk about what led up to the... And then I do jump a little ahead, but really, I'm trying to keep this a little brief. I thought, as we spoke in over an hour already. So let's talk about the what this shot in Sarajevo and how, because as we spoke about the Franco-Prussian war with Austria at the time of, and how they would end up being allies and how the shot in Sarajevo, of course, triggered, as we know, the First World War in the first place and how the Germans wanted to feel like they were the big brother at this point. Okay, this is a this is a big and complicated subject, uh, as you well as you well know, mm. um, and uh, it had it really. The further the further back one goes, in the origin of wars, uh, the more complicated the story, and the harder it is to assign responsibility. So, if we start in the summer of nineteen fourteen. The primary responsibility for the war is Austria's. There would not have been a war in 1914 if the Austrians had not done what they did, which was to try to use the assassination in order to weaken Serbia and uh, reaffirm Austria's position in southeastern Europe. Uh, the next responsibility in 1914 is Germany's force, not only for supporting the Austrians, but after having supported them, after having supported them, for paying no attention to what was happening. So the Austrian representative <clears throat> comes to Berlin on the 5th of July, week after the assassination. There's this famous meeting in Potsdam uh, in which the, the emperor seems to be saying, well, you do what you have to do. We'll back you up. It, 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 we, we have about a 250-word summary of what was an afternoon's discussion. So we shouldn't be overconfident that we know exactly what was said and what was heard during this meeting. In any case, what we do know is that during that odd period of relative calm between the assassination and the outbreak of war, the Germans do very, very little to try to figure out what the Austrians are doing and to offer some kind of um, influence over them. I mean, doesn't William, right before the outbreak of war, take a cruise in the Norwegian fjords to seem that it seems like everything is okay, like nothing He does, he does indeed. He does indeed, and <clears throat> is this because he was it was a, it was a trick? Uh, is it because he really did think that this crisis would blow over like so many others had? It's by no means clear. We know we know more about those four weeks leading up to the First World War than I think we know about, or that is what governments were doing during those four weeks. Mm than we know about virtually any other period of history. And yet there are still huge unanswered questions about uh, people's intentions. I mean, did this, sorry, not Bismarck, but Wilhelm II, did it, is that version kind of work, or did it was, was it kind of a failure in a sense, if you will? Uh, well, I think it's, you know, William is, is not really up to this. He's, um, 
And a lot of the instability and the posing uh, and the falling in love with his own words that had marked his career from the start in the August crisis turned out to be truly disastrous. Um, once again, it does seem to me that the main responsibility for the immediate outbreak of war is in Vienna. Mm. Uh, but uh, there's lots of it to spread around. Uh, the, the British don't make clear what they were going to do, and if they had, maybe things would have slowed down. The French are encouraging the Russians to back the Serbs. The French and the Russians have strategic arrangements. That is, the whole Russian war plan depends upon France invading Germany. So, something we forgot to mention as well, and sorry for interrupting you a little bit there, but is the lead of, and we forgot to mention this as I said, but is the lead of the three emperors at this point, is it done done with? It hasn't been. Oh, yeah, that's, that's long gone, long mm. gone. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think Bismarck, Bismarck had always seen quite correctly uh, that Germany's position depended upon an agreement of the three monarchs in East, East and Central Europe. The problem was that both the Austrians and the Russians would have been very glad to have a German alliance, but they wanted to use it against the others. Hmm. So, um, no, by then, by then the Russians, by then the Russians and the French were committed to one another. Uh, the French president and premier go to Russia in the, that summer uh, and meet. We, we don't really know exactly what happened. because Those records aren't, aren't available. Uh, but we do know that the French encouraged the Russians to stand firm. And of course, let's talk briefly about World War I and how, how this would begin to be the end game for the Prussian Empire as well. Well, yeah, it, it, it's the German Empire. It's not really the Prussian Empire. Um, yes, I mean, I think uh, one of the debates among historians, and we're talking now about the uh, the course of German history in the 20th, first half of the 20th century. Uh, one of the debates is how far back do we trace the roots of German National Socialism? Um, well, to some degree, of course, we can go back into the 19th century. But it seems to me that the really critical shift in German history comes in the First World War. Mm. And the First World War changes the character of German politics and society in several fundamental ways. Um, it severely weakens the German state. It interjects into German public life a degree of political violence that had not been there before. Germany was a law-abiding, it was an unequal society in many ways. It was not a perfect society by any means, but it was a peaceful society um, in which there were demonstrations, 
but there was virtually no political violence. Uh, this changes dramatically in the course of the war. Um, and then finally, and not least important, what the war does is to dislocate uh, the German economy. Because one of the sources of German stability down to 1914 was that powerful economic growth, the results of which, while unequally distributed, were nonetheless apparent to millions and millions of Germans. Um, it was a it was not only a politically orderly society, it was also a remarkably prosperous one. Um, in which millions of people could believe that their life not only had gotten better, but would continue to get better. Well, the war changes that dramatically. Uh, So the combination of injecting political violence, delegitimizing institutions, and dislocating the economy, the combination of these things I think, profoundly changed the way Germans relate to their state and society. Is there any way, of course, we have to take out the United States, obviously, but it's let's say the United States never entered the war. But is there any chance at all that the Germans could have won World War One even without the United States entry? Or that they would have lost without, without the United States entry? Well, That's a very good question. Um, I don't think the Germans could have won. Even without the United States. And the reason of that is that the French and the British had access to the global economy. They Mm. controlled the Atlantic. Now, the German submarines, if they had managed to cut that control, uh, then I think things could have been different. But the submarines failed, which means that um, the French and the British have access to the food, the supplies, the capital um, that the Germans do not. In Central Europe, the Germans and the Austrians uh, are increasingly faced with severe food shortages. Uh, the British don't introduce rationing until virtually the end of the war. And that's because they've got access to to the colonies. They've got access to Argentinian beef, to uh, wheat from all over. So American wheat. So this really matters a great deal. Mm. Um, We think about the, the stagnation of the Western Front. And that's right, we should. But behind that stagnation, is this vast openness that the Atlantic powers have. Uh, and this is not true in the in the East. Of the course. If I can just add one more thing. Yeah. The important thing is that down to the summer of 1918, both sides think they can win. Mm. With some reason. And that means neither side is really willing to seriously negotiate. And I, I think because, you know, although it's debated that the Seven Years War is really the First World War, but, you know, what made this so special was that they had 
there no of the powers were allowed to have separate peace agreement and they all had to agree together on one peace, of course, which would end up being the peace treaty of Versailles. But what made this different from other wars was indeed that they agreed to no separate peace treaties as well, I think. Well, there are separate peace treaties, but they're all signed more or less at the same same time. Um, it's true uh, that powers want to get out. Some powers want to get out of the war. Uh, but again, if they think their side is going to win, uh, they're going to stick with it. So, of course, let's talk about the end of the German Empire and the Treaty of Versailles, which caused the abdication of Wilhelmus. Of course, it, I mean, I feel like the, the peace treaty of Versailles is essential as well to talk about. And then we talk, can talk about the abdication of Wilhelm II and the, the creation of what the Weimar Republic. And, the, and that's the last thing we talk about today. Okay. One of the remarkable things that happens at the end of the war is that monarchies everywhere are significantly discredited. You know, in 1914, France was the only great power without a European power, that is, without a monarch. All of the newly created states in the 19th century had monarchs. So monarchy was thought largely to be the ordinary way of organizing political power. Now, these monarchs had different uh, different levels of power. Almost all of them were limited in some ways by constitutions, but they were there. By 1918, monarchs are declined everywhere so that the, sultan, the Ottoman sultan, who lasts a little bit longer, but not much, the Emperor of Austria, the Tsar of Russia is gone by then, of course, and the King Emperor of Germany. They're all gone. All of them, except for except for Tsar Nicholas, all of them survive. Uh, all of them die in their beds. So they're not killed uh, like uh, Louis XVI. Uh, but they're, they're simply thrown out. And this happens to William. I mean, he you know, he's up, he's over at the general staff headquarters in the West. Uh, a general comes to him and says, your majesty, you've got to go. Uh, and so the closest he can get uh, to a neutral power is to Holland. So he gets in a small convoy of cars and drives across the Dutch border and says to the Dutch, uh, I'm here, uh, find me a place. And they do. And of course, he lives till, what, 1942, 43. Yeah. And I think we're going to round it up there because, you know, the rest is German history. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before I go, do you have any social media or any homepage you want me to put in the description or where people can, might find your book if they want to read? And I repeat um, the title of the book, which is The Making is, of a Modern Political Order and the Essay right. of German Essays on History German. and Historian. Story. Yeah, Amazon is always there. Thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to, to talk well. with you. 
my name is Alan. This has been well, that H12. We are available on Twitter or on Instagram under well, that H12. Please like, share, and subscribe. And if you are, if you you can find us on Apple Podcast, iTunes, or YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on iTunes, please consider writing a little review. That would help us out a lot. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.